Get that India, big boy. Well, hello there. I'm John, also known as 4020, and uh, I think we're going to break the Scoville scale on this week's episode of The Tip Sheet. Um, so joining me in this uh, spicy and fiery episode is my mate, uh, 60s. How you doing, champ? Mate, I think right at the moment, first of all, g'day, and g'day to all the listeners, but I need you just to go to the stats now because I need to compose myself. So, so to provide some context here, usually we'll do the tip sheet the, uh, the morning after, or if it is an afternoon game, we can sort of catch it that evening. We're going live uh, about 10 minutes after full time from the 20-2 uh, the defeat at the hands of the Penrith Panthers, which um, featured some interesting officiating. We'll, we'll start with that. So uh, full time in round 18, the Penrith Panthers 20 defeat the Parramatta Eels 2. Uh, try scorers for Penrith, Josh Mansour, Liam Martin and Jerome Luai on the bell. Cleary was free from free off the boot from the, the try scoring conversions and then one from one, <laughs> one from one penalty conversion. Mitch Moses knocking over the opening points of the day for the Eels. Uh, yeah, the stats are going to be as lopsided as you'll see this year. Uh, 65% of possession for the Panthers, 40 minutes and 24 seconds time possession versus Parramatta's 21-45. Uh, the Eels actually completed more efficiently, 84%, 31 of 37 sets versus Penrith's 80%, 43 of 54. Uh, 230 runs to 155, 2,200 metres to 1,300 metres, 850 post-contact to 530, five line breaks to zero, which Fox Sports had at more as well. That came up multiple times during the coverage. 43 tackle breaks to 24. Uh, the Eels slightly down on plated ball speed, 3.43 to 3.46. Parramatta got more offloads away, 10 to 7. But yeah, from there, it's just... Uh, and shockingly, Parramatta had a higher effective tackle rate despite all the uh, missed tackles. It shows you how many more tackles they made. 89.1% tackle rate from Parramatta. 88.2 from the Panthers. The Penrith Panthers made 336 tackles. The Eels made 459. So that's an extra 133 right there. 123 rather. Basic maths, thank you. Uh, and some uh, somehow, despite that, uh, the Eels, with their 43 missed tackles and 13 ineffective tackles, uh, led the Panthers in effective tackling because of the 24 missed tackles and 21 ineffective tackles. Uh, yeah, so, and the other big one was uh, penalties were four apiece with ruck infringements favouring Penrith 8-3. to three, uh, And that was very lopsided, and that's what we're going to get to very shortly. Uh, first up, mate, uh, do you want to look at the good from the Parramatta Reels? Because there was plenty of good. Um, that was one of the most committed and, and sort of gutsy efforts we've seen in a long time. Or do you want to sort of dig into the uh, the ugly part of the game first? First of all, I want to say that I never thought it would be possible for me to suggest that I would be proud of an 18-point loss <laughs> by my team. It's definitely an odd timeline we're living in at the moment, isn't it? It certainly is, but I was extremely proud of the team tonight. Yeah. I like... believe that the scoreline did not reflect the level of commitment that Parramatta put into no, the game tonight. not at all. It did not uh, in any way illustrate what is going to be possible should the Eels come up against the Panthers in week one of the finals. It was a reflection instead, and excuse the language because we have <laughs> spoken about this, but that was a game 
where the Penrith Panthers were kissed on the dick as as a certain times. as a certain head coach would like to say after a game against the Canberra Raiders earlier this year, they might have been managed to that win. Um, and of course, Ivan Cleary crying about the refereeing in that game, um, feeling like his team was managed back in the second half of that game to sort of let the Canberra Raiders come back. Well, his team were managed for 80 minutes to victory there. And obviously, Penrith played good football. Don't get me wrong. They came out and they ran hard and they defended hard. But the, that was every... Barring the, 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 the uh, I suppose, the dangerous throw on Gufferson, which was almost a make-up call for a blatant dangerous throw on Nathan Brown the set before that was missed on halfway, which I don't understand how that was missed because he was literally picked up from like one and a half metres and dumped on his shoulders. But... Uh, yeah, that was the only call that went Parramatta's way the entire game. And beyond that, Penrith just had everything go their way. Um, the, the ruck was not even close to being competitive because the moment the Eels tried to tackle and hold someone down for a fraction, it was a six again. Meanwhile, Penrith were just able to molest the Eels set after set. So tell me, what was the play of the ball speed again? Like, shockingly, the play of the ball speed was almost identical. So it was 3.43 uh, for Penrith and 3.46 for Parramatta. So there's got to be some outliers making that inflate one way or another because that does not add up to what the eye test saw. No, and you can see that there were a number of occasions where the Parramatta tacklers were being held in by an arm or, or some sort of uh, reason where they were being held into the some of those tackles. And it's I think it's important that I say I, I'm not I'm not going to be anti what Penrith put on tonight because... I mean, Penrith played what the ref gave them. They they played exactly what they needed to do. Their second half was a perfect example of what you do if you are going to strangle another team out of the game. But let's be perfectly clear that when it came to decisions and bounce of the ball and those, those sorts of things, that there was plenty that went their way. The, when the ball would hit the ground somehow it wouldn't be a knock-on or somehow it was uh, there was a way where it, even before that first try of theirs, I, I could be very wrong, but gee, it looked like the, the pass went straight into the shoulder of the uh, of the Penrith player. and, and Yeah, I, I went back and had a look at it, and I'm, I'm fairly certain Jerome Luai managed to get a finger to it because it looked like the trajectory of the ball deviated ever so slightly. But, um, yeah, it once again, just sums up the night, doesn't it? And Jared Sutton definitely let the uh, occasion get to him. Because that was yeah. not that was not caught anywhere near down the middle, and yes, yeah. that you know there is an element of ref blaming here, and I'll, I will put my hand up for it because I feel like that's the sort of game where I understand the Eels have their issues in offense, but defensively they put themselves in a position to win against anyone. But with the officiating going the way it did, you're you're just pushing shit up a hill. That that is honestly what it felt like. There, in any in any week, there can be rightful fingers being pointed at the Parramatta Eels attack in in the way that they've lost their way building their attack on the back of tenacious, brutal defence. That was the hallmark of the Eels in the first half of the season. Tonight, there was a very simple reason why the Eels attack didn't click. They didn't get the friggin' ball. Yeah. If you don't have the ball, if you if every time you're getting the ball, it's in your own 20 and We'll give a we'll give a tick to the Panthers for that, but they were given the six agains. They were given the territory, and they kept to they kept making sure that Parramatta were given the ball in their own twenty. And my goodness, the Parramatta Reels team were absolutely gassed trying to bring the ball back. 
from their own half. And the commentators were going on and saying about how little ground the Eels were making yeah. trying to carry the ball out with from their 30% own With 30% possession, what do you think? <laughs> Hello, Captain Obvious. You know, like these, these commentators, seriously, in all, in all seriousness, I, I cannot believe that they can be critical of a team that's barely had over 30% possession and that they can't do anything with the ball when they get hold of that ball. It's absolutely ridiculous. The, the Panthers had repeat sets, six agains, lots of territory. I think there's plenty of question marks can be asked about how a team can have so many play the balls in an opposition's quarter, have so much disparity when it comes to possession and still can only ice a try five seconds before half time, 20 seconds before full time and another try off a kick. Hello? Yeah. Hello? What? I'm sure that the game would be a different kettle of fish if the territory and possession were flipped over. Again, I'm, the Panthers did what they needed to do yeah, in the second look, half. As I want, I want to stress, to this, isn't a, this isn't an attack on the Panthers. They, they played the game that was laid out for them ideally. They didn't try and overplay their hands. Well, they did in the first half a little bit. But in the second half, they corrected the ship and managed to sort of just you know work their way to the victory. But you know this this sort of comes back on once again the officiating in which only one team was in that in that contest after the sort of first fifteen twenty minutes. Yeah, and again, it's it's those I was a dead against the six agains from the start. It, it, I was. It's I, a great concept in theory, a great concept in theory, but in practice, it's just way too volatile, isn't it? It is. And what was the go with that reversal of a? of a penalty yeah. that the Panthers were given and changed to a six again. Mate, can you talk me through that one, mate? Well, I mean, I don't know the rule, rule book in and out by any means, but having played lots of league and union growing up, you know, right through into my 20s, uh, I, I have never seen that ever happen because it, it was to my understanding that once the referee has made his decision, regardless of the code, the only thing that can change it is a foul play overrides that initial call. And so if he, if he erroneously makes a penalty... You often hear him say on on the hot mic that catches on on the coverage, if a captain comes up and on the replay it shows that the ball was blatantly stripped and not knocked on, or vice versa, it was uh, knocked on and not stripped. You'll see the captain come up and he'll say, "I'm sorry, Guff. I'm Quentin. I'm sorry, Quentin. But once I've made my decision, I cannot reverse it." And here we are, no foul play. He's blown the penalty, which you know was probably the the ironically the worst outcome for the Eels. But he, he walks back and says, "No, I'm allowed to walk it back to a six again." It's like, no, once you've made your call, that that's in the, in the record books. So, like I said, it felt like Sutton was sort of overawed by the, the whole uh, situation. Yeah, it, obviously that wasn't, as you said, it, it wasn't one that impacted the results of the game. It was an indication that there were some strange decisions and calls that were going on tonight. So, I also want to say that I'm... Obviously, Penrith were the better team on the night tonight because they played the game that they needed to play under the conditions that were there with the possession and the territory that they had. And as you said, they didn't overplay their hands. I don't think it was a victory to write home about. I think it was a match that if the Parramatta coaches can get the right message into the heads of the Parramatta players, 
they can take something out of that. Oh. Uh, look at the scoreline of 20 to 2. Look at how much possession, how much territory the Panthers had and how they struggled to get over the top of the Eels in One, the end. 100%. When I wrote my Team List Tuesday blog, it was something that I sort of capped off with, noting that it'd be awesome for the Eels to spring a big upset victory because that could galvanise them. But just as much so, this is very much the sort of week, considering that you're missing Dylan Brown, you're missing Reed Money, you're missing Murata Niakore, two of your spine players, and by far your best impact forward off the bench. This is very much the sort of week where you can have a quality loss. And this is definitely in the, the territory of a quality loss. Offensively, we have issues, but that was a wholehearted effort in defense. And it really is something that you can build off. Let me share something else, which I think that the Eels can maybe take out of this game. Just prior to the kickoff, Nathan Cleary was interviewed. And I quote him. It's obviously disappointing to lose to someone like Parramatta. Yeah, I, I noticed early the phrasing on, on that in the year. Yeah, that that sort of got stuck in my craw as well. It's like, excuse me, um, you were the team that didn't finish in the eight last year. Now, I'm going to carry that quote in my head. Yeah, it's bulletin board material for sure. And I'm hoping, <laughs> and I am hoping that that quote gets through to the Parramatta players. I, I know they're professional. I know they shouldn't be thinking about all these sorts oh, of you, things. You, but absolutely, there was a, you absolutely like that sort of stuff. It's the extra 1%, isn't it? That little bit yeah. of motivation, a bit of spice each week. And I mean, I'm, I'm not going to begrudge clear for saying it. I love that sort of stuff in sports because it adds to the theatre. And, you know, when, when you have something like Parramatta and Penrith who have a storied rivalry in and of itself and you also add in that layer of the RCG and Blake transfer, there's, um, there's plenty of spice to be shared between the two teams. And so clearly adding fuel to the fire is perfectly fine for mine. <laughs> but do you know what? I don't think he was actually saying it for the theatre. No. <laughs> he was that he was just asked a question, and that was what came out of his mouth. Yeah. So, I mean, and in, given... Yeah, given... They, are, they are an arrogant football team, <laughs> and I won't back away from that. No. You no. know how I feel. Look, you know how I feel about the attitude of Penrith supporters towards That's, Parramatta supporters. Yeah. Right. I'm not, it's, I'm not talking about what I think of Penrith supporters. What I'm talking about is the attitude that Penrith supporters have towards Parramatta supporters yeah. and how they carry on at Penrith games. And, and what I have seen has been quite disgusting behavior and every, it look, every club's got them. Don't get me wrong. The, the Penrith but, branch tend to be particularly vocal about it though, don't they? <laughs> they do. So I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I'm gonna I'm gonna add Nathan Cleary into He's on the shit list. my list of people that have a again excuse the language a bullshit arrogant attitude, and I hope that the Parramatta players are able to deliver to him what deserves to be delivered when it comes to the finals time. One sec, I got something for this. Chip, you know what? You just made the list. <laughs> so <laughs> they're, um, they've made the list. Uh, so we've just jotted down uh, one N Cleary on alongside the uh, Penrith fandom. So yeah, that, that's going on the bulletin board for both sixties, and I hope the team. Uh, now, now let's we, talk we, about the good. Yeah, you said before, let's talk about the good. Yeah. So there, there is good and bad, and the bad does also reflect on the eels, not just the officiating. So do you want to go good or bad first? No, let's go good. Let's go good. 
Okay, well, you can kick it off. You kick it off. Where do we start? Obviously, the defense is by far the sort of the huge takeaway there. Um, Twenty points conceded really doesn't reflect the story. Uh, I think that the uh, if we go back to the team stats, if it doesn't reflect the um inside the twenty tackles, I think that they had in excess of fifty or sixty tackles inside the twenty. I feel like, and they could only yeah. come up with the, I mean, it was ultimately three tries, but um, one being a miracle ball on hum on half time, where unfortunately uh, Blake Ferguson didn't trust Wonga, who was actually well positioned. And I'm um, sort of let uh, Mansell get outside him, and then the other two being above the, the buzzer beater at the end, where Guffo was absolutely gassed and couldn't rope in Jerome Luai, and then finally the other one being Liam Martin in the uh, the kick, wasn't it? Yeah, where Guffo misread the the sort of the run to the ball and allowed himself to get taken out of the contest by virtue of his positioning. So just uh, it was a rough night at the office for Guffo in that sense, just because he had to get through so much defensive work. But the good was, yeah, awesome defense. Uh, Penrith made a ton of line breaks, but that was on the back of their aggressive play and the Eels just swarming in cover defense. And yeah, that that was just across the park. I'm, I'm trying to think of someone who you'd pick on defensively for having a bad game, and it's very difficult. Jay Field made a number of crucial tackles down the left. Uh, Moses spotted up Kikau a number of times. Uh, Stoney was great during that prolonged stint that he, prolonged stint that he got in the first half. Uh, well, let me just check the missed tackle count and see if anyone really jumped up. Mitchell Moses had four. Nathan Brown had eight, which is high, but he was also really trying to lead that line speed. So I'll, I'll give him a, a pass mark there. Any, anything jump out for you? Oh, Wonga Blake had eight missed tackles. And there was that one bad read he had too at the end, which uh, he shot out of line and, and didn't make the tackle, which is a, a, a big no-no in my books. But beyond that, I thought Wonga defended quite well. Uh, who jumped out? Yeah, he was lines? very good. He was, he was very good on the scramble. Yeah. And if he was... If he missed some tackles, it was a slight error in technique or um, just the quality of the of the run that was being made at him. I thought in terms of his reads, there was probably only one really bad read that he made. If I'm going to the good, obviously the attitude from the Parramatta team was hard to fault tonight. It really was. Um, I think... Uh, Mitch Moses is still drifting far too uh, laterally in when yeah, we it's, do have It's really weird. He's, he's definitely lost his sort of rhythm, hasn't he? And it, he has. He has. I don't know how much of it is not backing his first step acceleration because of that calf. Because a lot yeah. of times when he wants to take on the line, he really plants that right foot aggressively and, and goes from there. So he's sort of, like you said, been guilty of drifting. And I know that. Gufferson was equally guilty of that initial attacking raid where he just, he, Gufferson switched off for some reason when Moses passed to him, but Gufferson had been crowded by Moses going sideways anyway, so the attack wasn't going exactly anywhere, even if Guffer caught the ball. Yeah. I, um, now, I'm probably guilty. I've just, I just stepped into a little bit of criticism there, so I want to go <laughs> back to the good. I want to go and backtrack back to the good. So I said the added, I thought that the attitude was, was exemplary from the Eels. It was exactly, what I wanted from tonight, if I'm honest, I believe that coming into the game, we were going to suffer a 12 to 18 point loss. And it turned out that way, but mm. it turned out far different to what I thought. Yeah, I tipped the and, Eels this week, knowing, like referencing on the Para podcast, that that was very much a tip from the heart, knowing that the head says it's going to be a loss. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it was, like we said, the quality loss was sort of in the ballpark of what we're looking to get out of this game. Yeah, I was hoping. I was hoping for a quality loss, 
I was expecting that the Panthers would be far too powerful for us, given that we had two spine players out and our most potent bench player. So I thought it was just for them being at full strength and us missing half of the spine, I, I thought it was just a, too big a question for us to answer. And I thought if, a, again, if a bit of luck, the odd call, and it would have been a, an awfully close game tonight. And I think it's a shame that it didn't end up being an awfully close game on the scoreboard. Back to the good, I was uh, quietly impressed with the performance of Will Smith tonight. Yeah, considering he came in ice cold. Um, yes, ice his, service, cold. his service was a little bit spotty for sure, but he's not a specialist hooker. And he managed to no. get through, I think it was 40 tackles in 40 minutes or something to that uh, extent. Give me one moment. Uh, he made 40 tackles in uh, 45 minutes. There you go. So missing that, missing that, two. So that's a, a Herculean so Yeah, that effort. is. Oh, and I was actually thinking more about his uh, defence when it came to praising his effort tonight mm. because he's not the biggest individual and he's being asked in his very first game of the season, well, the, since the restart, so we'll exclude any lower grade. We got, we got the, the one game on for the Parramatta Canterbury Cup against the Dogs, right? That's right. So basically coming in cold. This is, the, this is probably the equivalent, any of these blokes that are playing, the closest thing you'd compare it to in past seasons is a player that's been off on a long-term injury. Yeah, and come back. That's and the, obviously that's they're, the they're more they're more comparison. healthy when they come to the games, but in terms of match fitness and and touch and feel, they they got nothing. And you know, you're right. coming against a team that have won twelve in a row heading into Friday night, and that you know play fast and aggressive. So it's a huge challenge defensively. So full credit to Will Smith there because that is easily a game where he could have shirked it and really bled points through the middle, and instead he rolled up his sleeves and gave Brad Arthur a reason to think about picking him next week. Yeah. I thought uh, RCG was outstanding in his first sense on the field. Yeah, well, Penrith really went after him, and I can understand why, because there's obviously some, some sort of hard feelings there. But he was unlucky not to pick up a number of six-agains because they really gave him a lot of extracurricular stuff through the ruck, and he sort of just took what they gave to him and, and sort of really fought for those extra metres, whatever he could get him. Yeah. Uh, so, basically, fairly pleased with the forwards. I thought mostly the, the bench did quite okay. Gutho was outstanding, and it was unfortunate that we had that uh, couple of errors just at the end of the game. Yeah, well, Gutherson had a number of spectacular kick defusals, which is unfortunate that he let Liam Martin score that one try because he'd been so good under the high ball prior to that. He was he was outstanding and he was driving the team as a captain. There was uh, no question. And that it's he curious was... because he only he's obviously clocked for one of his lowest meterage efforts on the season, given that we only had thirty five percent of possession at fifteen runs for one hundred and seventeen meters. But I'd be very curious to see what the GPS data was from today because I reckon he probably did about tenfold that all around the park, didn't he? Yeah. Now we do have to talk about the not so good from Parramatta because. We would be. It'd be remiss of us not to um, run the critical. We wouldn't be genuine. No, we be, wouldn't be genuine in our analysis if we if we didn't look at what was 
needing to uh, needing to be improved. The the aspects of the of the Parramatta game that uh, aren't up to scratch. So, yeah, well, on a on a macro level, straight away, I know that a lot of fans will be calling for it. We've called for it too. The offense obviously isn't clicking, and I know that there's been criticisms of the actual offensive structures and whatnot. But it's not so much the structures as it is the players just second guessing themselves and not being quite in rhythm more than anything else. Or at least that's how I see it. You only have to look at that description of clunky. Now, that clunky description comes about where you've got people that aren't running where they're supposed to be running, mm-hmm. people that aren't uh, delivering passes when they are supposed to be delivering mm-hmm. the passes, where there is no rhythm in what's going on. So, Yeah, the best, tell, we've talked they, about it. The, the best of Parramatta's attacking structures are predicated on getting fast, playing downhill, and making the, deci- the opposition have to make decisions like fast and sort of on the spot. And when you give them, you know, multiple looks, you've got Sean Lane and Michael Je- Jennings crashing down on the double unders. So which one of those guys is getting the ball? Or is it going to be Gufferson tapping it on out the back to Mike Acevo? When you've got that sort of triple threat attack, it makes it, you know, it, it works when you go fast. Because otherwise, if it's Jay Field instead of Dylan Brown, for instance, at the moment, if it's Jay Field that's sort of cruising into the line but not playing fast, then those guys are there, but they're not quite in sync. The, the defense just says, all right, well, I'm going to swallow up Jay Field. And in a game like tonight, you are playing against a, def- a defence which is remaining relatively fresh because they are not being put under any pressure. Yeah. Their workload yeah. is a lot is a lot lighter. So the any time that sure. you've got a any time that you've got a shift that's going on, it's a shift against a, an advancing defence, not a shift against yeah a with heavy support from the cover defence. Yep, correct. So it's. Now, hard to it's hard to be um, well. Look, you can be critical of it, and you can be rightly critical of the attack. It's something that they have. To, I think they're lacking in confidence. That's a big part if of it. I for can sure. just back, if I can just backtrack to the earlier part of the season, we talked about the playing better off the platform that the forwards were laying. The other aspect that they were doing well was they were transitioning well between structured and unstructured yep. football. Yep. And yeah, I think that was sort of at, peaked in the Roosters game where we were able to like seamlessly go between, you know, rapid offloading to, okay, let's realign it and play structured from the offload. Correct. Correct. And at the moment, the, the well, the platform this week certainly wasn't uh, getting any sort of platform from which they could launch Either, either structured or unstructured. They just didn't have the possession. They didn't have the territory. You, you can't play that sort of attacking football from your own 30-metre line. And we were getting, we were barely getting to the 30-metre line on the yeah. fourth or fifth tackle. Especially when, like you said, you're working it out from 30 metres off the line, and because the referee has a very generous 10 metres, the, the Penrith defensive line can just tee off on you. Can you? What was our? What was the stat for the uh, amount of play the balls that we had inside the Penrith twenty? Ay ay ay! Do I have the tackles inside twenty? I don't think I do have it on the top because I don't think NRL.com play it out as a public stat, whereas Fox Sports were spruiking it all through the broadcast. 
well, we know that it wasn't high. It was not. Yeah, it was. And I it was nine. We, I think it was nine tackles late into the second half. It was ridiculous. Yeah, we had we had an opportunity in the first half, and that was where we saw Mitch Moses drifting too far across, and then he delivered a ball to Gutho, who wasn't looking yeah. at the pass coming his way, and it looked. And it looked super ugly. And that, that was, was probably our moment to really break open the game too because we just absorbed all the pressure, got in our first set of six inside the 20. And if we could have done that, it really you know knocks Penrith on the back foot. Yeah. And if there's one thing that we need to correct, if I'm, if I'm going to try to put it as succinctly as I possibly can, I think our attack needs to straighten up a lot yeah. more. And well, it's, it's, a, it's a weird dichotomy because we tried to play too straight probably today, but that was also a function of the game being a real like slugfest through the middle. In recent weeks, though, we've definitely been guilty of playing laterally before we've earned the right by going north and south. So, yeah, we've got to find that balance, and I do agree. Straightening up the attack would help a lot, even if it's so far as Mitchell Moses and Jai Field. Just, you know, really simple. Just here's the ball, Madison. Here's the ball lane tear into the defensive line, make those interior edge defenders respect our ability to threaten on that corridor so then we can play wide or inside with more impunity. And let's also be fair dinkum and say that missing Dylan Brown... Oh, that that mean, I haven't said it because... Well, we did mention it briefly at one point, but we haven't gone over it in depth because it should go without saying. When you're missing you know, the most talented young 5'8 in the competition, one of the most talented young hookers in the competition... And obviously, Murata Niakori from the bench, that is huge offensive potential missing. And yes, the Eels have been clunky when they've been on the field too. But we saw last week that uh, Reed was actually opening up his game for the first time in a while. He'd really carved up the Warriors for the middle. And those sort of runs could have been invaluable tonight, alongside the better service and also equally of importance, the extra kicking option for Mitch Moses instead of putting all the pressure on him to heave it deep. And he had some fantastic clearing kicks. But the ability to threaten Penrith for multiple points from the kicking game sort of keeps Dylan Edwards more honest and takes away from his ability to return kicks as effectively. I need to address an aspect of Parramatta's team selection that continues to concern me. We've got a couple of bones to pick on an individual level, so let's start with that one. Mike Acevo. You you were off Micah tonight? You didn't like him? I'm... I'm concerned that his confidence level just looks absolutely atrocious. I'm concerned about his carries from the backfield. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, and I've, I've been trying to work out exactly what it is that he's not doing in his carries from the backfield. And part of me says he's, he's far too upright when he's carrying the ball from the backfield. And I think that's true. But I've also been having a look at the way that he's, his, his strides as he's hitting the line. And it almost seems that as he, as he gets to that tackle, he plants the foot. Hits the handbrake? Yeah. Hits the handbrake. And at best, he's going down on the spot where he's hit. And you see a lot of other wingers, and I'm including Blake Ferguson in this, the legs keep pumping. The, keep, the struggle continues in the tackle. I don't believe... I, I think it's close to zero struggle in the tackle from Micah. I think that is a very fair going. criticism because on, on the, so the body of work tonight, I think he was actually okay. 16 runs, 123 metres. 
He diffused a kick or two, uh, popped up in support play once or twice. But like you said, the sting from those runs is not there. And obviously it's nice to see him scoring tries in other games, but the other part of his game, foundationally, is the ability to start set, start set strongly. So yeah, that is a very fair criticism because he certainly was not bring, bring, he doesn't bring the energy that he used to. So I don't know if he's just got you know second-year fatigue, a uh, bit of a lack of confidence, like you're saying, whatever it is. The, as we mentioned before, the problem is you can't drop him and, and let him get his confidence back in reserve grade. You can drop him and sort of let him get his head clear and, and tell him to straighten things out, but you don't have the ability to see if that's having an actual impact in live game situations outside of the NRL, don't you? That's correct. Now, I've... It's really tough because I like Micah. Oh, he's an absolute, I, I, like, awesome character, fantastic story. And, you know, we know at his best, he's one of the most devastating players in the competition. But, you know, we're, we're talking about a team that is trying to make a serious push for the finals. And he can still be part of that push. and But maybe that comes on the back of him sitting out a game or two. It's, it's a tough call because <clears throat> the... Really, the only option that's there, well, there's two options that are there. One is recalling George Jennings for a game on the wing. And you'd effectively be calling him back possibly for one, maybe two games, and and that's it. You could promote Hayes Dunster. And I think Hayes is a, a very good young talent, but completely unproven at NRL level. The one thing that I do know about Hayes is that he would return the ball better than Micah. He has an innate ability to beat the first defender when he's carrying the ball. It's something that he's always done quite well ever since his junior days, and he continues to do it in opposed sessions. So I... I think it's an interesting decision whether they give him a go to give Sivo a rest. I'm thinking they probably won't. I think they'll just continue on with Micah. But well, you're damned I if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Without yeah. reserve grade, you just do not have the flexibility to make these sort of calls. So you're sort of ride or die with the guy that's incumbent. So, and I think I'm, it's. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that something can. I know they work with Micah. They work with Micah about a whole lot of aspects of his game, but that's a part of the game that is important for a winger to be able to do well. And I'm really concerned that I'd probably give him. I'd give him almost a fail in his carries from the backfield at the moment. That that's fair, and they'll have like the review sheet for that sort of stuff internally. And you'd certainly hope they circle it, but it's an ongoing thing. It's not like this hasn't been highlighted before. So just mentally, he needs to find that bridge to get over whatever sort of chasm is blocking him from getting forwards. Um, and it, I think it's fitting that you sort of brought up a winger because the other one I wanted to start with was Blake Ferguson, who for the vast majority of the game was actually really good. Played um, real tough, made a couple of big plays defensively. Also ran the ball well, 14 runs for 115 metres. Not flashy numbers, but in the context of the game, that's really good work. But when the game was there late... And, you know, we sort of, I know it absorbed like 130 extra tackles or thereabouts by that point. But there were two plays that really jumped off the page for me. The first was Mitch Moses taking it to the line and, and putting a kick across the field looking for Blake Ferguson to try and force a repeat set. And he just was not there. He was gone. And it was like, oh, all right, okay, fair enough. The second one was even worse, though, because Ferguson was a long side winger, which means you've got to be back. Like, it is your duty positionally to be back and play that second fullback. 
and he was in the line. Yeah. That's when Cleary raked the forty twenty. And it, I mean, Gufferson was on the other side of the field. He was no chance of getting there. And Ferguson was just not even from Cooey. Gufferson from the other side of the field got closer to the ball than Ferguson did. And it's just two moments that, and I understand he would have been gassed from the huge workload and the, the tough game, but he's your, he's your leader in the back line. And that's something that you just need him to be on the spot for because it, it's the sort of platform that he lays mentally for the rest of the team to build around. And I think you were right when you said he looked gassed. I think he, that's exactly what it was. I think he was. I think he was gassed. I mean, and the entire team was obviously. There you go. I, what I was going to say is, one of the things that players learn when they come into the NRL. Now, I'm not saying this as I'm not an NRL player, so here's me talking about you know. But this has been relayed from learn. your experience around the joint. This is what I've observed with the message that's put through to the young players coming through is they work them and work them and work them till they're into a state of fatigue. Then they ask them to do the hard stuff. Yeah. Because and that's, that's the game state you need to be in effort. in order to find out how deep you can dig. Yeah. Yeah. They are asked to make the effort on effort on effort when they are already fatigued. And I've, and I'm saying that the, the message that's actually said to them quite explicitly is keep going. This is what you need to do. This is the, this is what it's like in the NRL. This is what it's told. This is what's said to the, the younger players. This is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to do this. If you want to play NRL, you are going to have to do make effort during fatigue. You are going to have to make effort on effort in fatigue. Your whole game is in a state of fatigue. So if you've got a team where you've got as many players as possible who can play under fatigue, that's when you've got a good team. Now, was that a moment where Fergie couldn't make that effort? And it's, well, let's say you've, you've said he didn't make either effort. And I know it feels unfair to criticise him because he put in so much effort in the prior 65 minutes, but that's when... It was winner takes all sort of territory. We, we were, you know, last chance to really score and threaten the Panthers with another eight or so minutes left in the tank, on the on the clock, and yeah, he just he wasn't there, and it, it hurts because he he was so good and he's one of the team leaders. You have to wonder. I, I and those those moments stood out to me when I was watching it as well, and I have to wonder had, had he taken a knock? Was there something that had left him? And that's the other other part of the story that we don't gassed. know. Yeah, because. Yeah. I mean, the, the full extent of the fatigue was apparent when we saw Gufferson fall off Jerome Luai following that 40-20. Uh, it was just, you know, literal... I mean, the guy also copped a real big shot from Viliama Kikau, so that might have rattled him a little bit too. But it was just the, you know, like you said, <laughs> you talk about effort on effort, that was the result of tackle on tackle, wasn't it? Just so much workload defensively. Um, I'm not done complaining, though. i got a couple other players I want to point out here, and I don't like doing it, but uh, there were two players, one of which has been a, a, a chronic offender lately, I'll start with the minor offender, Sean Lane. Um, one error, one crucial error on the what would have been bringing up the last tackle of a set that um, led to points in the uh, second half. That was he. You know, we get out to forty-five meter mark, tries to push uh, push for the play the ball and just drops it cold, and that's what led to the Liam Martin try. So that you know just shows you how a minor mental lapse can uh, snowball into something far more serious. And unfortunately for Laney, he's had a few of those clangers across the last couple of weeks. But the other player yep. that really has my eye, and you might guess who it is off the bench, 
but um, Kane Evans. Kane Evans. I just it is so. We talked about Marcus Evo, you know, being hard to justify selection. I really struggle to justify Kane's spot in this team now. It's been multiple weeks where he has been well off the boil, uh, multiple crucial errors, defensive lapses, um, just silly unforced stuff that is really hurting this team. It's like his head's not quite in the yeah. right space, yeah. isn't it? I agree, and we and we we know unfortunately with Kane, it is a very volatile state mentally because we saw him at the start of his career here where he wasn't dialed in, and that was coming off a broken wrist in the World Cup where he left the Roosters and didn't have the preseason and whatnot, and he just was a complete train wreck the first year. Did very well to re- like salvage himself in 2019 and turn himself into a, both an effective starting or bench prop for us, and he carried that through into the uh, the first sort of seven or eight weeks for us in 2020, but ever since the injury and then the sort of the contract, I want to say saga, but the... Uh, the contract situation with the New Zealand Warriors where he ended up signing elsewhere, he's just, he's not punched in for us. Yeah. And I think that's a fair call. And I probably wouldn't go as far as to suggest that I wouldn't be selecting him in the team because again, it comes down to sheer necessity. Who would we, who do you put in, in this place? And if you've got Murata out, sorry, excuse me. If you've got Murata out now for two to three weeks, you can't afford to be down another player. So what we basically need is for Kane Evans to lift his game. What what I would like to see, and it doesn't require any team changes, is Brad start to farm out more minutes from Kane to Oregon. Yeah. But in saying that, if we just quickly compare the numbers today, um, Oregon actually got more minutes than Kane, 29 to 19. So evidently there was a shift in the balance of power there because prior to that, Kane has been the the tertiary prop in the lineup. So this is probably do, the first. Do you think uh, BA was unhappy with what Kane oh, did out when he oh first man, went if, out there? If you had the, you know, the Sonny Bill Williams style coach cam on Brad, if you're just looking at, at the, the Ken Evans positions, not only would he have his heart in his mouth, but there would have been some um, sort of felony level offenses on the water bottles that Brad has stacked up in front of him in the coach's box because, you know, he comes on and I understand that, it was probably a loose, uh, probably it was a loose carry. But you know, you look back a couple of weeks, and D- Dylan Brown's pinged for trying to extricate his hand the same way there, and that could have gone either way. But you know, Kane has a loose carry, and it opens the way for the Panthers to lodge a, a late sort of push in the second, in the first half rather. And then yeah, and from there, it's just every time he runs the ball, it's a heart attack because he's going to try and force a stupid offload. And in, in this game, he happened to have a quality offload, but there's so many times where he just tries to force the ball, and, and defensively, he just doesn't back up the way he should through the middle. So, and I like Kane because he, when you see him at his best, he's so good off the bench and he's a quality starter as well. He can bring you something special as a you know point of difference. He's tall, rangy, can um, generate surprisingly good con- uh, post-contact meters. So he can be a huge cog in the engine, but when he's not this, like not locked in mentally, when he's not punched in, not switched on, geez, it hurts his liability. We ended up speaking quite extensively about things that we're not, happy about I, but I suppose that speaks to the it's funny because it speaks to the high standards we have as fans because that yeah. was a, an awesome defensive effort that is a you know blue ribbon type stuff the the entire world was against us today and we only managed to concede 20 points and it, you know it could have been well less than that if Fergo stays a little bit wider at the end of the first half if Guffo can just take a slightly better line and, and isn't sort of almost checked by Janko coming backwards and then at the end if, if Guffo's not banged up and incredibly fatigued you know Penrith, you know, did just enough. And, you know, that's all they needed to do, so credit to them for that. 
But like, so, like, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, like I was saying, it's very easy to fall into the trap of being too negative. And that's sort of where I don't think we're being viciously negative, but you sort of, like you said, you sort of look at the breakdown and we're 40 minutes into this podcast and maybe 20 minutes of that is pretty comfortably talking about the negatives. Yeah. So can we, can we switch things around a bit and for sure look, look ahead and try to visualize where Parramatta's heading from here. We've got games that would we would be expected to win against the Broncos and the Tigers, although the Broncos could yet be the unknown quantity because they've got a couple of their gun players who are having gun moments in Katoni Staggs. Yeah, Katoni Staggs and um I mean David uh, Feet is always for, a scary proposition. Payne yeah. Haas too. So they've yes, got you so, know, three fantastic young talents that can take over a game in the course of a couple of minutes. And we've seen that you only need to have certain things go against you in a game for one team to end up with a whole lot of momentum that's virtually impossible to get back. So I'm, I'm not writing any game down as a certainty in either of these last two matches. But... Do you think that the last two weeks have given us anything? Well, I think they have, but have, what have they... I'll rephrase the question. Mm-hmm. What have the last two weeks given us from a positive perspective that the team can take going forward into the finals? I mean, it's vindication that the team that we knew they could be and the team that they were for half this season hasn't evaporated into nothing. Tonight we saw championship-level defense. I'll, I'll say it was championship-level defense. The the hustle, the determination, the sheer willpower across the park of guys that were willing to back up for the guy inside and outside of them in case you know there was a break or a half break. That's what gets you deep into the postseason. And against the Warriors, I mean, the, the, the big thing would have been with Reed fit, you were starting to see a new sort of foible to our attack, which maybe could have been the, the breakthrough to leverage that into something greater to, you know, get downhill through the middle on the back of Reed's uh, more aggressive playmaking in that corridor and then allow Mitchell Moses and Jay Field and if Dylan Brown comes back in time, the ability to play off the front foot from there. So I think in the last two weeks, we've definitely gotten results that we can build on. It's a matter of whether between the injuries and then just recovering from this game psychologically, if we can keep going. I'd like to think that we'll get... First of all, we'll, we will get the players back for the finals. I mean, I think, I think Brad, I haven't seen the press because we went live so quickly after the game, but I am just reading through some chat, and I do think that Brad intimated that Reed is likely to play next week. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I think if there's a possibility of him being rested again, I'd be comfortable going in with... Uh, Will Smith and Ray And we didn't talk about it much, but Ray Stone did a phenomenal job. Service wasn't always amazing, but he um, had no botch passes that were, you know, of particularly awful quality. And defensively, he got through a ton of work with the the fresh starting forwards of the Penrith pack. And uh, if I just go to his stats, he only made 32 tackles, you know, just, you know, a cosy 32 tackles, no miss, no ineffective. So that was a big effort from the, um, the young utility forward. No miss, no ineffective. Yeah. And that, I mean, that that's the sort of defender we know that he, he is. Um, so a huge effort from the young man. 
And unfortunately, you know, just <laughs> didn't get a chance to flex much in attack because of the way the game went. Yeah, yeah. So we'll get Reed Marnie back, definitely. We're looking at Murata, who is going to be two, three weeks at the worst. Yeah, so round 20 or week one of the finals, he'll be back one or two. Yeah, and I'm expecting that he... I'm, I'm actually expecting that Murata will be back in round 20. That's what he's personally aiming for. I think there's, there's a bit of nuance to that decision to be made on the coach's side, depending on what the ladder looks like and the implications of winning or losing in round 20. Because obviously you want to win, but um, if you know our, our spot can't be changed by virtue of other results coming into round 20, maybe it'd be better for Murata to have the extra week off. They're just you know, spitballing there. Yeah. And Dylan Brown... The big one. I know. <laughs> yeah. We can't, we probably can't afford for him to be coming back with two of the finals, but it is what it is. So I'm pretty sure that he's aiming for week one yeah, of the finals. There's two things at play here, or three things. The initial one is the diagnosis, which was six to eight weeks. It was a relatively severe syndesmosis injury, which he managed to play through for most of the game. Just blows my mind. Uh, I can't get by, <laughs> get by that without mentioning it. But the other two things is he's young and has been historically a pretty fast healer based on what we've seen through the juniors. And two or three, I'm losing track. I can't even count the three anymore. I'm, I'm like Jared Sutton out here. Um, he is a tough bastard, which we sort of circled on in point one. And that means that if he's only 75% or even 60%, he'll play through that syndesmosis if, he, if the team comes and asks his, um, for his name to be read out on Teamless Tuesday for week one of the finals. So... There are some positives that we can look forward to in terms of personnel coming back. We trust that there wasn't any more injuries that were taken out of the game tonight so that by the time we get to week one of the finals, that we are back at full strength for the, our top 17. I think we can, I suppose, be reasonably confident that we will stay within the top four. It's not guaranteed, but we would have to drop one, possibly both of the last two games for us to drop out of the top four. And Canberra would have to win. You need the Rabbitohs and Raiders to win out and for us to drop. uh, So they need to win out. uh, Or the Raiders have a game in hand. Sorry, I'm, I'm mistaken there. So the, if the Raiders win, they'll move into one win behind us this week. So, yeah, depending on how our results play out, if we drop uh, one game and the Raiders have better, the Raiders do have better for and against than us. No, they're slightly behind us. So, yeah, there's some for and against and some different win possibilities in there. So, there's a couple of different scenarios here. But essentially, if you take if you win one game solidly, you should be okay. Yeah, yeah. And if we're winning a game, you'd like to think that we will get try and put the foot some down points that will yeah. help out yeah. differential. <laughs> However, in saying that, all the Parramatta has to do, their destiny's in their own hands for a top four finish is to win both games. They win both games and they finish top four. And that's it's as simple as that. They've got games against the Broncos and the West Tigers. They win the games against the Broncos and the West Tigers. They finish top four. And that's basically would be a well-deserved result for the season thus far. Yeah, And then the whole competition restarts again with the top eight and it restarts from that perspective that it will be the Parramatta Reels hopefully at full strength 
And I think I would be looking forward to a return match against the Panthers in week one of the finals. Yes. I think I'd be quite ha- I think I would be quite happy with I that. I think the NRL would be pretty happy for that too. <laughs> That's a, a big I mean, obviously without the, the benefit of a full house, but that is a, a big ratings win for the NRL there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, much to look forward to. Um, I'm not expecting any changes for Teamless Tuesday. We just quickly look at, if we just quickly have a bit of a think about that, there's probably nothing more coming forward except for maybe Reed Marnie coming back, in which case it would be Will Smith drops out of the 17. And, yes, sir. And, and we're looking at, Pretty much the same team to take on the Brisbane Broncos at Banquet Stadium this week. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've um, shunned the spotlight, as you would say, on some of the more obscure NRL specialists going around. So um, we might as well make it a trifecta this week with a, a particularly interesting branch of um, NRL specialization that's sort of come into the limelight most recently. And although the NRL is literally a never-ending soap opera, or soap opera as it were, you don't normally associate rugby league with the performing arts. However, mate, I believe you're a budding playwright and you've been working on a few ideas across pollinate footy and the stage. I've been trying to keep that under wraps, mate, but yes, I've been working on a few ideas. Well, you're in luck because I've managed to track down the former wrestling coach of a high-profile club who is now offering his services to NRL clubs as a drama coach. So it's my pleasure to welcome Stone Mason to the tip sheet. Ooh, yeah. Stone, we've asked you here to critique some of 60s wordsmithing, but before you help us out there, why shift from wrestling to drama? I've done some good stuff in footy. The chicken wing, the cannonball, the squirrel grip, the rolling pin, the wing nut, and of course, the crusher. I don't think you can be proud of any of that, mate. But here's the evil genius of it all. The glory days of wrestling in the NRL... They were always going to end, and the latest rule change led me to believe the writing is on the wall for us wrestling coaches. So I now teach players how to act as if they're the victims of those tackles, and a new vocation is born. I don't think I want to go there, mate, but let's throw it over the 60s so you can offer your professional advice to him. Okay, let me first of all apologise to Mr. William Shakespeare for your wrote and for what's going to follow. Now, first of all, I've got this soliloquy. It's Virgo's soliloquy as he chased his first try of 2020. Is this a football which I see before me, the steeding toward my hands? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not a tempting vision, beckoning to the pleasure of the try? Or art thou but a football of the mind? A false creation proceeding from the past oppressed brain. It's missing a world somewhere. Can you give me a world? Woo! Now, 40. After that, woo, I need you, if you can, to deliver the eels and plea to Dylan Brown for me. Calm down, nature boy, but I'll give it a, sh- a fair shot. <clears throat> Odile bags. Dillbags, wherefore art thou, Dillbags? Repair thy ankle and run once again. For if thou wilt not, our season could well be done, and eels no longer be glorified. Again, it's missing something. 
I think it should be Dillbags. Say it with me, Dillbags. Mm, okay. Um, so Dillbags. Dillbags. I think that will do me, 60s. Back to you. Right. Okay. Uh, we'll make this the last one, and it does seem topical at this time of year. So here we go. And there's perhaps some Parramatta supporters thinking that as uh, we reflect on the last game. To win or not to win? The para fan question. Whether it is wiser in the mind to suffer the pain and anguish of misplaced hope or to link arms and laugh in the face of the barbs and, by opposing Gould and Gallon, end them. Beautiful. You can sense the anguish. Like being held in a squirrel grip. I would say that all field sands smell what you're cooking. And curtain. So on that Elizabethan bombshell, I think we'll wrap it up. Um, that'll do us for the round 18 review. And just before we go, mate, can I just give a quick shout out to uh, the people who sent me text messages straight after the game that I didn't get to straight away. And what pleased me about a lot of them was that they found a positive in what they saw last night. Uh, there certainly wasn't the doom and gloom that I'm sure is perhaps still around. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just uh, just a, a thank you to those people who sent the, that text straight and, after the And game. to be fair, as we discussed in this podcast, there was a lot to be, not chuffed, but, you know, quite uh, happy with. Yeah, and, and just for context as well, I'll, I'll mention that we're just recording this little uh, ending to the pod first thing the next morning so the the podcast will actually be up as you're listening to this uh in the in the next in the the morning the day after mm-hmm. so uh again as i said thank you to those people who sent the text messages late last night we were recording so i couldn't get back to you within a decent time so uh again thank you and, and good on you for staying strong with us indeed and as always thanks for stopping by and listening you can drop us a comment on TCT. So be sure to jump into the conversation. Um, tell us how you felt about the game and uh, what your expectations are for the Eels moving forwards in these last two regulation season games. We'll catch you all next week.